Well, we are back this morning in the Gospel of, of Mark. Uh, we're kind of at the, at the hinge in the Gospel of Mark, kind of the, the turning point in, in, in Mark from turning from seeing who Jesus is to beginning to see what He has come to do. And so we're going to be looking this morning in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. And you can find that uh, printed for you in your bulletin. Uh, most of you know who, if I say the name Tom Brady, that would be a familiar name to many of you. He's a longtime quarterback uh, of the New England Patriots. And in a 2015 article in the New York Times entitled, Tom Brady Cannot Stop, uh, the writer of this article talks about Brady's obsession with success and nutrition and self-improvement uh, and football. And he writes this, I asked Brady if he worried that too much of his life was wrapped up in football. That seemed like an odd question to ask of a football player, but Brady's investment in the game has been so total for so long, I couldn't help wondering whether his age-defying quest was driven by some fear of how futile it might be to find satisfaction in anything else. Brady ducked my question except to confirm its premise that football is pretty much everything to him. No real hobbies. I'm not a musician, not an artist, he said. What am I going to do, go scuba diving? Yet he comes off as anything but a bonehead football player. He will have to find something one day. Maybe not, Brady said with a laugh. I tried a different tack. Does Brady worry about confronting a void? No shortage of former players have lamented that nothing after football measures up to its exhilaration and camaraderie. This turned Brady serious. You need a purpose when you wake up every morning, he said. When I don't have the purpose of football, I know that's going to be a really hard thing for me. Uh, the writer then asked his, Brady's father if he thought Brady's career would end badly because he's so driven to, to keep playing for as long as he can. And the, and the, the dad said... It will end badly. It does end badly. And I know that because I know what Tommy wants to do. He wants to play till he's 70. Sounds like he's chasing something, doesn't it? Sounds like he's after something, trying to, to gain something, maybe a sort of football immortality even. Uh, LeBron James, another one of our most famous American athletes, the MVP of the, the current NBA champion, Cleveland Cavaliers, was asked, what's going to motivate you now that you finally brought a championship to Cleveland? They've never had one. You've accomplished your mission. What's going to motivate you now? And he thought a second and he said, my motivation is the ghost I'm chasing. The ghost played in Chicago. And for those of you who don't know basketball, that's a reference to Michael Jordan, uh, considered by many to be the greatest basketball player of all time. He won six world championships while a Chicago Bull. LeBron James is chasing that. He's chasing something. Tom Brady is chasing something. What are you chasing? What are you chasing? I mean, it's easy, right, to, to pick on professional athletes because they're kind of eccentric and they got a lot of money and it's easy kind of to, to highlight them. But what I want you to ask yourself this morning is, what am I chasing? Where are you trying to find life? What do you, what do you want to gain? What are you after? 
Are you trying to find life in, in what people think of you? Do they, do they laugh at my jokes? Do they, do they find me attractive? Do they say the right things about my social media posts? Are you trying to find life in your work? And finally making it, and maybe not in your work, but making it to the place in your work so that you can finally kind of let your guard down and be comfortable and relax and chase those other things that you really hope will bring you life traveling or golfing or shopping or whatever that thing is for you. Are you trying to find life in your children? Are you trying to find life in just a safe, comfortable, middle class existence? I don't want anything dramatic. I just kind of want to be safe and comfortable and then everything's going to be okay. Uh, In the passage that we're about to read, that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see that while we're all chasing something, Jesus says it's possible to catch what you're chasing and still not have life. And still have a void. It's possible, he says, to gain the whole world and not have anything, and in the end, lose your very soul. But the passage also tells us that we can find life if we can begin to see who Jesus is and what it is He's come to do. So let's look at this together. The Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. This is God's Word. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let me pray for us. Father, this is your word that you've given us this morning. Uh, You've placed me here to proclaim it, so I pray that you'd help me to handle it carefully and truthfully and accurately. And I pray that you would open our hearts uh, to receive it, our eyes to see the truth, Lord Jesus, of who you are and what you've come to do. We ask it in your name. Amen. So here's what I want to get at basically this morning. The proposition I want to put before us uh, is that finding life 
is tied up with knowing who Jesus is and what he's come to do and then responding to that appropriately. Knowing who Jesus is and what he's come to do and responding to that appropriately. So let's start there. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Verse 27, Jesus himself puts this question to the disciples. They've spent all this time with him. And so he asks them, who do people in general, who are they saying that I am? And the disciples reply, well, some say John the Baptist and some say Elijah and and some say one of the prophets. You know, if we were to ask this question today, if we go out on the street or do a survey online, who do you think Jesus is? We would probably get answers like, well, he was a good man or he said some good things. He was a great prophet. He he founded a, a major religion. Is that... Right? Is that the answer Jesus is looking for here? He, he, he then asked the disciples, do you agree with everybody else? Do you agree with their assessment of, of who I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. Uh, in Matthew 16 Matthew records Jesus' full response to Peter here, and he says, Blessed are you, Peter, blessed because flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you're right. You're absolutely right. I am the Christ. But okay, for us, what does that what does that mean? Like, okay, Jesus is the Christ. What's what's the deal with that? Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, uh, which referred to the anointed one. They were expecting an anointed king. The Messiah was this coming expected king. The Jews expected the Messiah to come and to destroy God's enemies and to establish his kingdom over all the earth. He was coming to make Israel great again. To deliver her from her enemies. To establish peace and prosperity. And Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah that we've been looking for. And Jesus affirms that. But he's going to have to rewire what Peter's expectations of this Messiah actually are. Then in verse 31, we learn that not only is Jesus the Christ, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's Jesus' favorite designation for himself. It refers to a passage in Daniel 7 where there's a prophecy about a divine figure who comes in the clouds like unto a Son of Man. A divine figure who comes with the heavenly host to put everything right. In verse 38 here in this passage, Jesus speaks of the day when He, the Son of Man, will come in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. So He's applying this to Himself. So Jesus Himself is identifying Himself as the divine, messianic Son of Man who has come. Who has come in all His glory. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the Son of Man. Other texts will read, He's even the very Son of God. But what's He come to do? What's He come to do? Has He come to to set up a kingdom? Has He come to overthrow the Romans? Has He come to occupy the palace? Has He come to make Israel and the disciples into this great nation and great people? No. Well, what, what, what's the use of a king coming if he's not doing any of that? What's Jesus come to do? Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus has come to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to rise. In fact, he says he must, he must suffer and be rejected and be killed and rise. But when Peter hears this, Peter rebukes Jesus. All right, imagine that. Peter rebukes Jesus. And Peter says, no, Jesus, that's not what you, that's not what the Messiah does. You're supposed to be here to set up a kingdom. We're supposed to be doing that with you. We, we, it's, it's glory days. That's why you're here. You cannot be here to die. And Jesus says, that's Satan talk. That's Satan talking. Peter, get, get, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand how badly, even though you're right about who I am, you don't understand, Peter, how badly you're missing it right now. I have to suffer. I have to be rejected. I have to die. See, what Peter didn't understand yet, but what Jesus does is that the Messiah, the Son of Man, is also this mysterious Old Testament figure that we see in the book of Isaiah known as the suffering servant. And Jesus is bringing all of these kind of motifs together into one. Uh, Many of you are probably familiar with some of these Isaiah passages. Let me read one of them to you. Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, this suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. See, what Peter doesn't understand yet is that if he gets his way, he'll destroy his only hope for life. Because Peter's only hope for life, and your only hope for life, and my only hope for life, lies in a Messiah who comes to suffer. A Messiah who takes my iniquity. A Messiah who takes my sin and himself bears the punishment for it in my place. Jesus must suffer. Jesus must die to atone for my sin. He came so that we could have life. But the only way that we can have life is if our relationship with the Father is restored. And the only way that our relationship with the Father can be restored is if Jesus dies in our place as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. In order for Peter to live, in order for you to live, in order for me to live, in order for us to pass from death to life, God's wrath, His righteous wrath against us and our sin has to be satisfied and turned away. 
See, the, the stakes are much bigger than, than Peter realizes at this point. Jesus has come to establish a kingdom, but it's a heavenly, eternal kingdom that's populated by rebels who are forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf at the cross. It's clear uh, as you read through the Bible that God is both a God of love and a God of justice. And the big question as you hurtle through the Old Testament toward the cross is how can God remain just and at the same time forgive sin? Well, you say, many of us might say, well, can't He just overlook sin? Can't He just say, well, whatever, boys will be boys. But you and I know that for, <coughs> excuse me, forgiving sin doesn't work like that. Uh, that if a debt is forgiven, uh, the cost has to be absorbed. The debt has to be paid by somebody. On our recent family vacation slash adventure uh, where we hauled a pop-up camper across the country, uh, across the eastern part of the country anyway, we, we borrowed that from Susan's brother. Now imagine if along the way we ripped the canvas. If he's listening, that didn't happen. Uh, or, or backed it into a rock, put a big dent in it, and we took it back to him. Now he would have a couple of choices at that point. He, he could say, I'm going to make you pay for it. And that will be $800.98 to, to, to pay for the damage that you've done to my camper. Or he could forgive us. But that cost to fix the camper doesn't just magically go away because he's forgiving us. He's decided to absorb the cost himself. He said, I'm going to pay the price that's required in order to forgive this debt. And that's what God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ. He's absorbing the cost. He's paying the debt in Jesus. The the price has to be paid. There's a debt to be paid. And he's saying, you don't have to pay it. If you're in Christ, then, then I'm writing the check. I'm, I'm paying the debt so that your debt is absolved. Uh, Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, and he, he's drawing on Soren Kierkegaard, uh, defines sin this way. It's the, the despairing refusal to find your deepest identity in your relationship and service to God. Sin is seeking to become oneself, to get an identity apart from Him. See, we're made to build our lives on God, to center our lives on Him, to find life in Him, and anything else is actually sin. And yet, that's what we all try to do. We all try to find life apart from God. Now, some of us will say, yeah, I'm going to try to live a generally moral life or I'll go to church as a fire insurance policy or because I want my kids to be raised in that sort of environment. I want them to know right from wrong. But where I'm really finding life, where I'm really finding my identity in the midst of all that religion and in the midst of all that moral observance is in my GPA or how popular I am or how much I weigh or how successful I am or how successful my business is, and whether people think I'm a good preacher, pastor, whatever. That's where I'm really trying to find life. And Jesus says, if you keep going down that road, 
building your life, trying to build your life on something other than me and what I've done at the cross, you're never going to find life. In fact, you're going to lose your life. Even if you're the, the MVP quarterback with a supermodel wife and the perfect diet and the perfect weight and the stylingest clothes and the 16 Super Bowl rings or whatever that is for you that, that you're clinging on to. You can gain all of that. You can accomplish all of that and lose your soul because you've tried to build your life on something that can't give you life. And you've separated yourself from the only one who can. You can gain everything you're chasing. You can, you can catch the ghost and still not have life. What's the answer then? What's the appropriate response to Jesus? Look at verse 34 and 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus is calling you and I, he's calling you to to let go of your life. To let go of the things you've been building your identity on other than God and grab hold of Jesus and this message of the gospel this message of a savior who came to suffer and be rejected and die to rise so that you could have life he's calling you to let go of your your dreams to let go of our obsession with comfort and pleasure to let go of the story and the identity that we try so hard to build for ourselves to let go of our self-absorbed lives to let go of our self-sufficiency And grab hold of the one who came to suffer and die and rise for comfort-loving, self-absorbed, self-sufficient sinners. He's calling us to let go and to believe that he's come for us, that he's come for rebels, that he's come for sinners, to let go and to find life in knowing him. Uh, Friday night, we watched the movie The Revenant, and as some of you commented, it had to work its way into the sermon today. Um, I think it should also be known as slowly killing Leonardo, but that's a, that's a different conversation. Um, early on in the, in the, in the movie, there's this, they're fur trappers, and there's this bad guy. Um, well, first of all, so they're, they're fur trappers, and the Indians are after them to get the furs, and they decide that they need to hide the furs... So they can travel quickly and get away, and they're going to come back later and, and find the furs. And there's this one guy who doesn't want to do that. And he's mad that he has to, to leave the furs behind. And he says, I don't want to leave these behind. And the commander says to him, if you keep the furs, if you hold on to the furs, you're going to give up your life. You're going to lose your life if you keep holding on to the furs. And the guy curses and says something like, these furs are my life. If I don't have them and the money that comes from them, I don't have a life worth living. I don't have anything. That thing was his life. And he didn't want to let go of it. And so my question for you this morning is, what are your furs? 
What are you first? What are you chasing? What are you holding on to? What are you clinging to desperately for life? What are you what do you have your hands around and you're saying, This is my life, and I will not let this go. Jesus is calling you to let go of the furs. To let go of the furs and to grab hold of him so that you will have life. One last story from the Revenant. And there's a little bit of a spoiler in this. So if you're gonna get like like cover your ears if if, if you if you're like gonna be mad at me. But um, in the in the Revenant Leonardo DiCaprio is, is attacked by a grizzly bear and these guys are supposed to stay behind with him while he gets ready, while he heals. But they leave him, they abandon him. And then the, the movie is basically him trying to track him down and get his revenge. And I won't, I won't tell you how that all plays out. But, but this is, the story is actually, it's actually based on an Old West story uh, which has elements of truth and fiction and we don't really know what's true and what's false. But in the original story, the guy who's left for dead tracks the guys down and he forgives them. He forgives them for what they've done. Now, now think about those two pictures. I mean, if you've seen the movie, you know, he goes through hell to track these guys down. So two pictures, going through hell to get your revenge, going through hell to offer forgiveness. How can I trust Jesus enough to give up my life to him, to give up my dreams? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. See what Jesus should have done? He should have come and he should have grabbed me or you and nailed us to the cross. Because that's what we deserve. But instead, he didn't get revenge or exact the the payment that he should have. He went to the cross for us in our place. He tracked us down. Not to kill us, but to forgive us. And that's what the gospel is all about. He came not to give you what you deserve, but to offer you grace. And that's what I offer to you this morning as one ordained to proclaim the gospel in his name, to bear good news, is to extend the offer of life to you this morning. Will you let go of your life? Will you let go of your life and quit calling it my life? And trust the one who has journeyed through hell itself, not to condemn you, but to forgive you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the message of the gospel and the good news that is contained in it. I pray that you would help us to turn away from the places we try to find life, that you would help us to turn away from our false saviors, and that we would grab hold of Jesus and know his forgiveness and grace and love and find rest there for our souls. We pray it in his name. Amen.